Before their top player is Boyle, number 15. He uh, averages about 20 points a game. Buddy, you gotta stick right with him. No inside penetration, shut down those passing lanes. And you gotta play tough off those boards, negate their height advantage. Hickory, it's time to take the floor. I'll get preaching. Okay. Uh, we're way past big speech time. Uh, I want to thank you for the last few months. It's been very special for me. Anybody have anything they want to say? Yeah. Let's win this and for all the small schools who never had a chance to get here. I want to win for my dad. Let's win for Coach. You got us here. Thank you. With God of Heaven, it is all one. To deliver with a great multitude or a small company. For the victory of battle standeth not in the multitude of hosts, but strength cometh from heaven. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it. And it struck the Philistine on the head, and he fell to the ground. Amen. Amen. I miss those locker room days. I miss the locker room days of high school, of college. And I realize that for some of you, the locker room was like the last place on the planet you wanted to be. But there is something special in that setting. In fact, uh, the section of Philippians that we've been in just reminds me so much of what's happening, what you just kind of saw on the screen. Um, I'll say Coach Paul. Uh, Coach Paul has been addressing the team. And he is loving on them. He's reminding them of their task. And he's also instructing them. So 
Turn to Philippians chapter 2, would you? If you don't have a Bible with you, you've got some people coming around with one. We're big about the Bible around here. Uh, Coach Paul, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. We, uh, at the end of chapter 1, the coach in essence is saying this, Hey, Team Philippi, be a one-thing team. Only worthily of the gospel of Christ, you must all be living. That's the charge. That's the header charge for the whole discussion in the locker room that's taking place that we've been going at here for a couple of weeks and, and again today. It's all about the gospel thing, team. That's what it's about. That's our thing. And he's talking in there and he says, listen, if you're going to be a one thing team on the gospel, it's going to require three things out of you. It's going to require that you're standing firm team on that. It's going to require you to be a side by side linked arm and arm team to be able to do that. And it's also going to mean as a result of that, a not intimidated team. But let me kind of say it this way. Much of the conversation has been about defense. It's been about protecting the gospel, the gospel truth. Okay, listen, let me say it this way. There's no question about it. Strong defenses win games, okay? And that's what Coach Paul has kind of been hitting on here for a little bit. And it's kind of like, listen, if you're going to be a strong defensive team, that means you've got to be a team that's one mind on the one thing as a team. And that looks like, as we talked about last week, and that looks like Jesus Christ. To be a one mind on one thing person, to be a one mind on one thing team, all we have to do is go look at our Savior and see what that looks like and what that is all about in living it out. Fully pouring himself out in my place for my problem. Paul, in essence, saying, listen, be like that. That's what we want to be. Oh, and uh, team, it's not just about offense or defense. It's also about offense. It's about offense too. Uh, The one mind on the one thing call is not just protecting the holy ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but is also about, if you will, taking it to the basket. It's not just about a strong defense. And this offensive part brings us to our text today. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, and let me just lead with this. Team Harvest, our call is to be a one-mind people on one thing. It's that simple. It's that simple. And that includes that we be not only a protecting that truth people, but we be a let's take it to the basket people as well. Okay, let's begin verse 12, chapter 2. Now, I want for you to look in your Bible and find this statement. Work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation. You see it in there? Towards the end of verse 12, uh, if you have a pen or a highlighter or a marker, which I'm totally about, I just mark my Bible up to schmithers, okay? All right, so underline that. Underline that statement. Work out your salvation. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. Because that is the controlling theme of verses 12 through 18. And by the way, 12 through 18 is under the controlling theme of only worthily of the gospel you must all be living. And now here we're at the part where Coach Paul is saying, now listen, 
Work that out. Offense. It's about offense. Uh, So it's like this. Let's work it out. Uh, By the way, Paul's statement here, work out your salvation. Uh, It's not a suggestion. This, again, I've used a number of times in the past weeks. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's a directive. He's not asking for a birthday present. He's telling it. This is coach saying, team, I'm telling you, work it out. Okay? That's where this is going. Now, let me be clear on this statement. What this statement that Paul is making is not this. Paul is not saying work for your salvation. Two quickies on why that couldn't be the case. Number one, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. You can't work your way to God. You can't work your way to heaven. By the way, how much work does it take? No one's ever able to define that one. It's usually about 51%. Better than everybody else is kind of the standard. You can't work your way to heaven. So that's one. That's why Paul is not saying it. Secondly, look at verse 1, chapter 1. Paul is writing to believers in Christ. Paul is writing to people who are saved in Jesus Christ. So why would he be saying, hey, save people in Jesus Christ, redeem people in Christ? Hey, listen, you need to work for your salvation. They already have it. Okay, so it's not saying that. Paul is saying the salvation that you do have in Jesus Christ, that you already have in Jesus Christ, if you've received Christ as your Savior, work that out. Now, the word here in the Greek actually carries out this idea of working out to full completion, working it out to its maximum potential. Work it out, friends. You know, it's kind of like in an aerobics class, isn't it? You're there and you're tired and you're going at it. I, I don't know if I've ever been to an aerobics class, to tell you the truth of my life, but from what my wife says, and then it's like you get to that place where it's like, work it out, work it out. I remember in sports, you're just dead dog tired. And it's like, come on, one more. It's like, one more back, and then back, and then half court, and then back, and then three-quarter court. I'm working on my attitude right there at my coach, but it's like, work it out. You can do it. Now, that's really in much of what Paul has been saying. Listen, you've been given redemption. Learn how to live redeemed. Get after living being redeemed. In other words, it's this, friends. Salvation is the starting point of the God in you journey. Has there been a time where you've come and all the knowledge of God, what the scriptures say, you've come to a place to where you realize that you're a sinner separated from God because the gospel thing is this. There's a big sin problem with a big God solution and that carries a big call on my life. That's it. There's a big sin problem, but a big God solution and that big God solution comes with a big call on my life. And if there's come a point to where you are like, listen, I see the big sin problem. God, I want to receive your big God solution and I want to live for you. If you come to the point where that's the case for you, that's the starting point of the journey. It's the starting point. In fact, say that with me. It's the what? It's the starting point. Salvation is not the certificate that you put on your shelf. It's not the little cute statuette that you put there. It's a whole new life. 
Uh, We're going to talk about this in a minute. It's when you become plugged in. Now work it out. People are saved one by one. People are saved one by one. But they are saved so as to become a people for God's name. Listen to me on this. Throughout all of history, as we know it, throughout all of history, God has always been about an increasing call to having a people for his name. The call was never about just little individualettes all over the place doing their thing with God. That's never been God's interest. Look through the scriptures from Adam and Eve. Reproduce, multiply. And the idea is I want more, a whole people unto me. The call is a people call as well as a person call. Uh, It's kind of like basketball or any team sport. There is an individual component to it. I mean, here's the reality. Strong teams are made up of strong individual players. But you can also have really strong players and not be a very strong team. But ultimately, it's about the team. And many followers of Christ think that being a Christian is an individual sport. It's like golf or or chess or uh, singles tennis or it's the marathon run all by yourself. Listen, it's not. It's walking with Christ is a team sport. All hands in. Come on. I'm serious with you. All hands in. Hey, come on. I'm serious. All hands in. Team. Okay. That's what they did, Hoosiers. I'm sure that's biblical. Okay. Let me just ask this as we get rolling here. Follower of Christ, are you a team player? Let me just put it this way. Are you playing on a faith family team? I think that's the first initial question. If you're looking for a church, find those people and join the team. That's what God wants. If Harvest is your church home, and and I'll just say this lovingly, if if you're on the roster, but you're not playing, it's time to jump in the game. That's the design. That's the call that God has. You're needed, and we work it out together. Well, Doug, how? What does work out my salvation look like? Let's get into the rest of it. Six insights Paul gives us into what it looks like to work out a salvation. I've put them, paired them up together into three. So first, working out your salvation means build a history. Build a history. In fact, you can look in the text there, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, Paul, uh, he had the view that faith in Christ is ultimately expressed in obedience to Jesus Christ. And I want to clarify this real clear. It's not the sense of following the rules. It starts at a place of following the person of Jesus Christ. Becoming so wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ that it changes how you live. It's not about rule following. It's about lordship loving. Strong players have a history of playing the game. And strong teams have a history of playing together. And Team Philippi was that kind of a team. 
Because Paul says in the text there, you have always obeyed. There's a history of obedience, of lovingly following Jesus Christ by these people. Just how cool is that? I could say it this way. A little history of obedience to Christ, just draw the line on out. A little history of following Christ, make the trajectory, ends up meaning a little following of Jesus Christ in the future most likely. But here's where the hope comes in today. You can turn that around if that's the case for you, by God's grace. A little history builds a little future. But here Paul is not only talking about building a history, but let me read verse uh, 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. It's about building a history of consistency. It's not just in my absence. It's not just in my presence. It's about something you should be doing all the time. It's a consistent life for Christ. A question, ask yourself. No, let me change that. What would God say about your consistency? Are you one thing here and something different at work? What about here versus work versus home? What about school? What about here versus work versus home versus school versus Friday night, Saturday nights? What's the consistency look like? Because there is a consistency. The question is, what is the consistency? And here in Philippi, Paul is charging them and he's just saying, listen, you've been the kind of people that have been following Christ and out of love for him. That's just marvelous. Players that are inconsistent as to whether they want to be engaged in the team, as whether they want to be engaged in the game or not, I'm just telling you, one, they don't play, and two, they drag the team down. I just remember back in high school days, some of the guys on the basketball team or on the football team, it's just like, do you really want to be here, or did your mommy make you be here? And they didn't know. And for the rest of the players, it's like, seriously, dude, could you like either step in or frankly step out till you decide you want to step in? Because right now you're really dragging the whole ship down. And that's the fact. However, if you've played in a sport or you've been involved in any kind of team anything, engaged people are a delight. I would rather have engaged people that aren't so good than non-engaged people that really got a whole lot of ability. True? Build a history of consistency. What does your history look like? Just add 10 years. If there's been no history or if the history is flat, if there's been little history of obedience in Christ, I just ask yourself the question, why? Why is that the case? And I want to call you in love. I want to charge you in love. Start a new history now. Start now. And maybe you need to get in a small group. Maybe you've been in a small group, but you haven't been in a small group. Maybe you just need some help and you're at a place and you're like, Frank, I have no idea what to do because of the history of inconsistency. Hey, listen, here's one of the cool things about here. We're just straight up about it. And it's like, listen, there's hope. And there's people here that would love to be able to come alongside and help you. Be man enough, be woman enough to say, I need to change. 
and I'm going to go get some help. Side by side together, right? Being a one mind on one thing team requires a history of consistency. Secondly, is to be a one to be a one mind on one thing people. It requires that you're to be awed by God. Uh, let me just say this: If right now in what I just said before, you're like, but uh, I just, uh, but I don't know how. Here's the starting place. Verse twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. Uh, The word for fear here, it's work out with fear. It literally means fright, terror. It also has this reverential uh, awe thing. Uh, It's like this, oh my. Let me just say it straight up in the right kind of a way. Oh my. My God. Why is it that we don't get charged up about being with God? Why is it that we don't get charged up about serving Christ just a day in and day out faithfully in his word together with him because it's a joy? What's the problem? I'll just say this because you and I don't see him big enough. We're not odd enough. We're not to that point where it's like, Oh, my. That's what it talks about with fear. It also in the text, it talks about working out with trembling. The word carries this idea. We actually get our English word tremor from it. Shaking. I don't want to downclass this one and go like this. It just means you're supposed to go, God, you're really special. That's not getting it. This is the apostle John on his face, like the beginning of Revelation. Fear and trembling because he beheld the throne. And the first place the apostle goes to is nose on the ground in fear and trembling. It all comes together right at that moment for him. Listen to Isaiah 66 two. God says, this is the person to whom I will look. Don't you want God to look at you? This is, the, in other words, to have his attention. Here's what he says. This is the person to whom I will look. He, she, who is humble and contrite in spirit, and listen to this, and trembles at my word. Last month in the Harvest You class, we talked about how God speaks in the power of his literal words. In creation, God spoke. <sighs> And it happened. That's power. Oh, remember Philippians chapter 2, right before this? It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow every time. At the what? At the name. He doesn't even have to show his face. Just the name. Just like in John, when they were coming in Gethsemane to take him. And, they, and he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, I am he. And the text tells us they were all flat on their back because of the name. I just have to say, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm preaching at me. At the name, is that me? Is that you? Or is God just a fluffy bunny? It's this whole thing where Jesus is my boyfriend. Ah! That's so not it. 
with fear and with trembling. Uh, consider this, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, mm. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, listen to this, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us, rules us. Because we have concluded this, it's a conclusion issue, that that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. What does it take for a person to be able to live for Christ? It takes being awed by Christ. Oh, my God. And everything changes. Have you been making God out to be a wiffle dust, fluffy bunny, wimpy boyfriend, girlfriend? Let's step back and reconsider. Be one that works out my salvation with a history of consistency requires a big view of God. And a big view of God means a big view of God. Okay, Doug, I hear the call. Work out my salvation. I really want to begin or I really want to continue a history of consistency for Christ. And I see the need to live in awe of Christ. I'm hearing you, and I'm wanting to do this, and I'm seeing the need for it. But, but frankly, that's a tall task. I don't feel like I have the power. I don't feel like I have the ability to do that. You know what I'm talking about? Am I alone? I know what I'm talking about. Uh, listen, that's a, this is what I love about the Bible. God has something to say for us about that, to help us. God isn't out here to crush us. God is out here to redeem us and to make us someone and to make us a people that adore him and magnify him. So he helps us. This is so cool. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. I could so spend the whole time on this one. Um, Okay, let me talk and control. Let me do that by this. Paul is not saying God is the one who is doing it all for you. Hang with me on that. In other words, it's not saying that you and I just sit around and we wait until we feel the mojo to follow God. Because God's supposed to give me the mojo to do that. Because here it says it's God who works in you to will. And right now, as we define it, see, we don't, we, in our conversation today, we don't even say, what do you think? We say, what do you feel? And what you feel is actually what it means to say, what do you think? How about this? How about we say, what do you think rather than what you feel? I'm already getting off track. Let's hang on here. So what he's talking about here is not this thing that God just makes it so you can be a simple robot. Instead, Paul is saying this. You are able to work out your salvation. You are able to live out your salvation because God has given you everything you need to be able to do that. 
God is working among you and God is working in you. You have been fully plugged in. God works in you. Verse 13, that word for works is literally what we get our word energy from. And you've got to be careful sometimes just because we get words from it doesn't mean it meant that back in that day. But back in that day, it did mean he electrifies. I like that. Electrifies. That's why I've been talking about he plugged you in. When you became saved, when you confessed your sin, not just knowledge, not just, yeah, there's a God out there. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he died for all sins. No, you take it personal. I have a big sin problem. God's provided a big God solution. And that requires a me repenting and a me stepping out. And God, I want to have a big God call in my life for you. And I want to be about that. Uh, think about this. God is so about his people living out his salvation work in him that he plugs them in. God plugs you in. He electrifies his people with the capacity to be able to do what he asks. Uh, God's children are really converted. They're really converted. If you want to say you were used to be on AC current, now you're DC. No, I'm not talking about the rock group. But if you're on AC current, now you're over to DC current or the other, you were literally converted. The word in, in all this has to do with this idea. You have been invaded by the spirit of God when you came to know him as your savior. Isn't that cool? God just invaded you. The body snatcher. He just came in and invaded you. I love that. And it's not just so that you can have a new behavior contract. But God has affected a new desire in you to actually be able to work it out. In other words, he plugged you in. Every morning at our house, Karen and I have this morning shake thing. Okay, that thing's plugged in all the time. But it's only used one time every day for about one minute. And guess how it gets turned on? Dink. That's my job, not the power's plug job. I'm trying to correlate it this way. When you came to Christ, you were fully plugged into everything you need to be able to live out your salvation in Christ. Listen, friends, everything. The question is, are you turning the switch on yourself? Are you engaging with the power cord? You have everything you need to be able to live godly, not perfect. This this isn't a call to be perfect. This is a call to be increasingly living more and more like the image of Christ. Paul says, Colossians 1.29, For this, the gospel, for this I toil. That's work. That's effort. It's putting it out. For this I toil, struggling. I love the honesty. Struggling, and hear me, with all God's energy. It's the same word. For I toil, struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. You've been juiced. You've been plugged in. You've been given everything you need by God out of love. Isn't that what a loving father? He's given you everything. How much? Everything. Everything. It's all there. He's given you his word. 
He's given you the spirit of God in you. He, he's, he's affected the, the cross work in your life upon you, covering you, redeeming you. God has done all this. Now the question is, are we willing to jump in on the team now that we're on the team and be a part or we are in this battle of sin? We're still bent towards sin even though we're redeemed in Christ. Paul talks about that in his own life in Romans chapter 7. Building a history of consistency for Jesus Christ requires being in awe of him and knowing that you've been electrified by him. Think about it. When you combine the fear and trembling with the fact that God has given me, plugged me in, God works in me, you put those two together, now we're cooking, folks. But the problem is we lack the awe reality. Okay? And that leads to the last point. When we're awed by Christ, knowing the fact that we are completely electrified by the Lord, it is then that we can begin to live radically for him. Let me read verses 14 through 16. Do all things. How many things? Oh, this is a hard one. Every time I pause here, Because what's about to be said, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Verse 15, that, in other words, here's a purpose, here's a, or I'm sorry, a result of, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me just pause there. Grumbling. It's complaining, some of your translations talk about. It's having displeasure with. And Paul is saying this, team, none of that. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm already convicted. None of that. For the follower of Christ, life is about working out your salvation. And grumbling just doesn't fit with a heavenly citizenship. What do we have to complain about if you're redeemed in Christ? That's been pondering in my head all week. What in the living world do I have to complain about because I've had a big God redeeming work over my big sin problem and been given a big life call for him. And let's see, let's see, life is about a sovereign God working in and among us all through life situations so that I can grow in him and bring him glory and, and, and spend eternity with him. Man, that's a lot to complain about. What? Grumbling is the internal attitude. It's the in, kind of the internal emotion component of it that shows up in our questioning or the disputing and the arguing. In other words, the grumbling, the complaining kind of is a heart issue. It's a, it's a thinking issue. And it's like this. It's like, uh, it's not fair. I don't like that. Why that? Why me? Why not me? Uh, what's their problem? This stinks. None of that. Ever is Coach Paul's call here. 
Well, let's put it in real perspective. Is God's call. Why? Because God is working in you and among you. God is working in you and around you to grow you. Romans 8, 28 and 29. So when I complain, my complaint is actually against my sovereign God working out his sovereign purposes in my life. When I actually complain, when you complain and argue and like put the fist up to life with what's taking place, you are completely doing that against a sovereign God who is in control of all things. That's the fact. I am literally arguing and complaining with God when I argue and complain with my wife about some things that have happened in my life or situations that are taking place or my comfort schedule has gotten twisted. (laughs) I am completely losing sight of a sovereign God allowing things to be worked in my life, not to crush me, but to grow me and mature me and you. None of that. God's children should be none of that. And in all straight reality, there is so much complaining and arguing. I'm talking all around the world in churches today. God's people. How sad. Look at this. And what happens when we do not complain, argue, or dispute? You see it in verse 15? When we're not that, we're blameless and innocent, without blemished children. Let's put it this way. It tells us there's a whole lot of sin wrapped up in grumbling. There's a whole lot of life sin that's wrapped up in grumbling and complaining. I don't have enough money. I deserve this. Why are they such a hassle? There's a whole lot of sin wrapped up in there. But it also tells us this. There's a whole lot of righteousness when we don't do that. Because it takes a whole lot of God thinking. It takes a whole lot of biblical truth thinking to actually not be a grumbler. It's like, what? Because the thinking overtakes the desire to look at the situation from just a horizontal perspective. But when I bring it into a vertical perspective, oh my word, my Lord is involved in all of life. He will not allow anything in life to come in my way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will not allow anything to come in my life to take me out. God knows everything that's coming my way. Everything. And he allows things. He keeps things. But also remember, we're in a spiritual warfare. We want to be taken out. And God is working as he will not allow anything to take us out. But yet through it, he does allow us to go through trials of life because we live in a sin-cursed world that hates the Lord. And we live in a sin-cursed world all around us every day. Verse 15, we live in a crooked, twisted, I'm going to kind of add here, grumbling, complaining world. 
And I'm to be a beacon of light in that dark world. Not a little flickering, teeny little off and on candle that gets blown out, but a beacon in a dark world. Why else is this such a big deal? Uh, Two reasons. Because as a child of God, what do I have to complain about I've mentioned? And I'm supposed to be a light. And our lives are to look different. Our lives are to look different. Do they? We're not to be awed by the world. We're not to be a complainer or arguer. But we're to be awed knowing that we're electrified so that we can be blameless and innocent people of God without blemish, shining like a giant electrified beacon of light in our world today. I'm just going to tell you, that's radical. Awed and electrified to live radically different. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. By the way, let me just make this. We automatically go, well, that's the Bible. Well, it's true because the Bible contains the words of life. But let me say this. At that point in time, what was the word of life? The word of life was Jesus Christ. Holding fast to the person of Christ. That's what we're to be. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud and I didn't, that I did not run or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. There's so much Old Testament in this, but I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me kind of wrap it up with these couple comments here. Living radically means this, Velcroed to the word of life. I could say that in two ways. Velcroed to the word of God. Everything, I'm looking at life through the lens of the word of God. And if you don't know what the word of God says, how about this? This is really cool. God's given it to us and we can read it. It's really that simple. Let's like get in it and let's like dig it and love on it. Because it becomes the lens of life and I'm going to be Velcroed from it. And don't take that away from me and think of Velcro. You got to pull it off. Velcroed to the word of life, and also glued to the reality of the future. You see that? The day of Christ, that's talking about in the future. Glued to the word of life with my eyes on the future. I could say it this way. Glued to Jesus Christ with my eyes on the future return of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Working it out, lastly, being radical and joy-filled. A radical, joy-filled child of God. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances. It everything to do with our identity in Christ. Hey, as we prepare for communion, final statement. We're to work out our salvation, building a history of increasing consistency, coming out of being awed by God, knowing that I'm electrified by God, resulting in living radically different than the world, having joy-filled eyes on the future.